really glad to be done with Genesis 18 and 19. Like a sigh of relief this week, reading chapter 20. Oh, such a, a, a better chapter. It's not really, but... So what we have here in chapter 20 of Genesis is the second time now that Sarah finds herself in the middle of a harem of a powerful king. So what powerful kings who didn't love God would do in this time is they would have harems. Uh, and in these harems, were uh, they'd have wives and uh, concubines and prostitutes. They basically just have a lot of women that were at their disposal. And the whole point of that was uh, for their power and their strength and their control to grow. And one of the ways that would, be, would happen would be by impregnating many women and having many children. And so Abimelech here is an example, one of those kings. And Sarah, for the second time, it happened in chapter 12. So it happens again now. She finds herself in the harem of a powerful king. And Sarah, is, she's not really the typical harem member. She's 90 years old. She is not who you would expect to see in the king's posse here, but she's there, just lined up with the rest of them. She was obviously in in pretty good shape. A 90-year-old woman, and she is in the harem of this king. Uh, In chapter 12, it was Pharaoh's harem, and here it's this Philistine king named Abimelech, and she's in his harem. Uh, And on both occasions, God deals with this situation uh, the same way. Um, one is that he sends a curse. He sends a plague on the king and his kingdom. Uh, so you're not going to get away with this. I'm going to curse you and I'm going to send a, send a plague. I'm going to make life miserable for you because you've done this. And then the second thing he does, it's explicit in today's chapter, and I believe it's implicit in chapter 12, is he threatens the kings in a dream. So he sends a plague But they don't necessarily know what to attach that plague to. You know, why is this happening? So then God comes to Pharaoh and God comes to Abimelech in a dream and says, this is why this is happening. And the reason is you messed with my girl. This is what God is doing. You've got a lot of women in your harem, but you've got one in particular that you should not have there because she is mine. Sarah. Right, Sarah is God's girl. He uh, just a couple chapters before he came down and had lunch with her. Right, the Lord Jesus came and had lunch with her, and assured her of all the promises that He was going to fulfill. She'd wanted a baby her whole life. Was barren, barren, eighty years old, and God says, "Listen, a child is coming." He comes to her when she's eighty-nine years old and says, that "One year from now, I'm going to come back and you're going to have a baby." She's like, "I'll be ninety years old." Are you kidding me? She cracks up. He says, no, really. I'm going to come back in a year and you're going to have a child. So God loves this woman. Okay, God has been working with this woman. You don't mess with God's women. Okay, so God comes. That is the point that we'll get to. Uh, is on both occasions, God rescues Sarah. He gets the girl. Okay, he comes in and he rescues her. Now, one of the questions... Um, to get out of the way, that is going to infect, uh, affect, not infect, that's funny, infect this sermon. One of the questions that will affect how we read uh, these two chapters, just 20 today, but um, is, was Abraham acting foolishly or wisely? 
So in the events leading up to this, right, where Abraham lies, is, is he sinning or is he actually being righteous? Is he handing his wife over or is he protecting his wife? Is he using folly here? Is he being, is he, is he being foolish or is he being wise? Um, we put that question out there in chapter 12. And I sort of left it open, if you remember, and I, I kind of gave both sides of that coin and said, you know, you can interpret it either way. Either he is in sin or he's actually doing something righteous here. But it was sort of open. And in chapter 20, we've got some more evidence that I think tips the scale. Now, if you've been, if you've been coming to Veritas for a long time, you know about myself that I tend to view the faithful men and women of Scripture optimistically and not pessimistically. So some, most, I think, read the Bible and are just out to get the faithful men and women in the Bible. So anytime anything's open to interpretation and they could either be sinning or they could be living righteously, we're quick to be like, oh, they're dirty, rotten, filthy, sinning, absolutely, and, and, and not necessarily so. Now, of course, all these men and women, including Abraham, are sinful. And we've already seen this and we've already pointed out. And sometimes there is just glaring, grievous sin. But we need to take a close look here because it's going to really dramatically affect how we interpret what's going on here in Genesis chapter 20 and answer that question. Is Abraham, in fact, doing good or is he doing evil? Because God is going to come and God is going to rescue Sarah and God is either rescuing Sarah in spite of Abraham's sin or in spite of Abraham's best efforts. There's a big difference. So either he sinned against his wife and handed her over and God saves in spite of that, or he's actually putting forth his best effort and is living faithfully and with wisdom. And, and, and it still doesn't go well, as is the case in our lives often. And God comes in and rescues. Of course, you see the point either way. God rescues. Always the point. So the gospel is here, I think, vividly. In chapter 20. Uh, so I'm going to take the view that, that I'm going to look optimistically at Abraham. I'm going to look at him through the lens of Hebrews chapter 11. I think he's a faithful man. And unless scripture is just explicitly clear that he's in sin, we should give him the benefit of the doubt. We should give this guy the benefit of the doubt. If that is not true, if Abraham is in fact committing a grievous sin, he's lying, he's handing over his wife, he's failing to protect her and serve her. If that's the case, then why is it that God is angry with Abimelech and he is not angry with Abraham in this passage? God does not give any verbal judgment on on Abraham's act whatsoever. But he does deal, as we're going to see, he deals fiercely with Abimelech. He deals fiercely with Abimelech. Abraham gets blessed. Abimelech ends up under the curse of God. He'll be delivered from it. But for three months, he's under the curse of God. Abraham is is, is not under the curse of God. So I think what's actually happening here is Abram does a good thing. I think Abraham is doing the best he can. I think he makes a good decision. I think he makes a, a wise decision. I think he's depending on some things to go his way, uh, culturally speaking, in the context where he is. And in spite of his best efforts, things go terribly wrong, as they did in chapter 12. So things go terribly wrong. 
in spite of his best efforts. And God must come in and save the day and rescue him. See, if we read this and we see, okay, you know, Abimelech's a good guy. And Abraham's a bad guy here. But Abimelech, he's just a, he's just a, he's a, not a believer, but he's a good guy. Okay, he loves people. He's trying to do things the best he can. He doesn't have, he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Let's give him credit. And Abraham is just a schmuck. That's the typical view. He's just, he's an idiot. He's selfish. And he's being a terrible witness to Abimelech. Now, if you view that that way, you're going to get a very different understanding of this passage. And I think you'll miss some elements of the gospel. Rather, I think Abimelech is the evil one. I think Abimelech is a dragon who steals Abraham's wife. It's outside of Abraham's control. The rescue is outside of his control. But thankfully, Abraham serves a good God, a merciful God and a powerful God who comes and and gets the girl. So let me pray. And uh, we'll read this great story here. True story, Genesis chapter 20. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a good God. And you've been good to us. You've been good to this whole world. You've been good to your people. You're good to Abraham. You're good to Sarah. Even good to Abimelech here when he does not deserve it. You are a good God. We should not be surprised when you deal harshly with us. We should not be surprised when your judgment comes. We should not be surprised when you deal swiftly with sin. But God, we are totally surprised at your mercy. You are so gracious, God. Help us be the kind of people who who understand our sinfulness enough to be surprised when you act graciously. God, may we not be a people, when you rescue us and you deliver us like you do for your daughter Sarah here, God, may we not see that as some sort of compensation that we are due because we're good people. But may we see it as as yet another undeserved gift from you. God, we are still breathing. We are still eating. We are still drinking. We still have friends. We still have family. We still have your word. We are a blessed people. So help us read this text as blessed people. We love you and give you praise and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, please open your Bible to Genesis chapter 20. We're going to walk through this now. And I'm going to uh, do my best to go against the predominant view. Uh, but certainly not the view that's held by everyone. Not every commentary I read gave this view. Uh, some commentaries promoted the view that I'm going to present here. I'm going to do my best to persuade you that this is what Genesis 20 is saying. And you'll see the payoff is great at the end because seeing God as the rescuer here, which I mentioned in the introduction, that's what we're going to come back to at the end. Okay, so we're going to read through, try to understand exactly what is taking place. It's important to know. And then we'll come back together at the end and look at the gospel and see the picture of the gospel that's here in chapter 20. So verse 1. Verse 1 sets us up. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. So from there, Abraham has, has left his most recent home. I mean, he's been away from his home home for decades now. God told him to get up and go to the land that he would show him. 
And Abraham's been a sojourner, which means that he doesn't really he doesn't really build a house anywhere and say, this is where I'm going to be for the next 50 years. God has told him, you're going to be mobile. I'm going to move you around from time to time. So he's got tents, but he's he's the wealthiest guy you ever saw who lived in a tent. Okay, he's probably has thousands of people in his household just because of all the wealth that he has and the workers that would be required and those that it said he acquired in Hebron before setting out on his journey. So he has many people who are with him. So this is a big deal, but they're intense. So it's really not that hard to get up and and head south. It doesn't tell us why. But what we know is that he was living in the hills of Mamre and he was just overlooking the valleys of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know what just happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. God scorched the earth. He destroyed every living thing, every animal, every person, every plant, so that it became inhabitable. It may have even had an effect on the hills where Abraham was living. There there may have been serious air pollution, the result of God sending down fire and sulfur on that valley that would have collected in the hills, just like these fires are collecting the smoke up in the foothills now. It's also... It's also possible that Abraham simply did not want to be reminded of the severe judgment of God and have his morning coffee every morning overlooking these valleys of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Whatever the reason is, it says that he heads south. He heads south to Gerar, which means that he's getting into Philistine country. These aren't great enemies of God yet, but they're going to be great enemies of God at one point. And he's going to deal with a, a very powerful king who's in the land at this time, and his name is Abimelech. Verse 2. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So here we go. We've got to figure out what we're going to do with this. Here's the controversy. What is wrong with this guy? Is, he, is, is this okay, what he's doing? Uh, how can he do this? You see the results that are going to happen. His wife's going to end up in danger. Uh, are you just interested in saving your own skin, Abraham? How could you go down here and not claim her? She's your wife. How could you not claim her as your wife? Put her behind you. Protect her. Instead, hand her over by saying she is my sister. So why does he do this? Well, if we read a few verses down, he gives the answer. Right? Because Abimelech is going to ask him later. Abimelech is going to come to him and say, why did you do this? Why didn't you just tell me the whole truth and nothing but the truth from day one? So look at verses 11 through 13. In verses 11 through 13, this is why Abraham did it. I did it because, so let's hear from the horse's mouth. I did it because I thought, it says a few things here. Uh, There's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So we learn a bunch here. We actually find out that Abraham and Sarah have been doing this for 30 years. Right, this is a strategy that they concocted way back when God set them out from their homeland into wandering. And so at the very beginning, what Abraham tells us is that he, he has a fear, he has a concern. And so he develops a strategy with his wife where he says, listen, when we go into a new town, when we go into a new city, when we go into a new society, I'm going to tell them uh, that I am your 
brother and that you are my sister and I want you to tell them the same thing. Now, why would Abraham do that? Why would that be his plan? Well, one of the things that we need to understand is that culturally speaking, at this time and in this place, men who wanted a woman would deal much more favorably with her brother than they would her husband. So if you rolled into town in this culture, traditionally, here's how it would work. If you rolled into town and everybody looks at Sarah, and apparently everybody looked at Sarah. Like she is the one that guys are watching until she is out of the picture. She's 90 years old. Some of you gals just want to know the secret. You're like, where is, tell us, what was she doing? What sort of exercises? What, how do I look like that? At nine? It doesn't tell us. That's not the point. But she's 90 years old and the girl's looking good. And Abraham knows this. He's like, I really scored. I got a great wife. I married up. She's beautiful. And so the way it would work is if you move into a city, okay, and men wanted this woman and she was off the market. In other words, she was married She was unavailable. Well, the way they would deal with that is they would kill the husband. Just kill the husband, put her back on the market so that she was available, and then they could marry her. However, if she comes and she's not married, but she has a brother with her, well, here's what was customary. Now you begin, if you want this woman, you begin to negotiate with the brother who would even represent the father if he was still living. That's what you read in Genesis chapter 24. Laban is the one that's dealing with Jacob over Rachel. Well, her father, Lemuel, is still alive. But the brother is the one that's doing the negotiating and and figuring out the terms if you're going to take this woman. So it would have been customary. It would have been the tradition wherever Abraham went, where if he said that he was her brother, that this is how that would be dealt with traditionally. A man would be interested in Sarah, and then they would work out and negotiate terms with Abraham, which would give him opportunity or time or what have you to move on if he if he needed to. So actually, it's very conceivable that this plan was set in the beginning between Abram, Abraham, Abraham and Sarah at the time to protect her, actually, not to hand her over. They probably did this many times on their journey, but it is unsuccessful in chapter 12 and chapter 20 when two wicked kings ignore the tradition and custom and steal Abraham's wife. But he probably, I believe, was actually thinking the best way for me to protect my wife is to stay alive. You know, people say, no, he's well, first he's lying and you should never, ever lie. It's a commandment. Actually, actually, I hope this doesn't become the highlight of the sermon, but it is okay to lie. It is permissible to lie at times. Now, parents, you'll need to give some further instruction to your children who are listening right now on the way home. Okay, you see over and over again in Scripture, God's people deceiving their enemies for God's good. Rahab did it. God didn't challenge Rahab. Don't you be breaking the ninth commandment. Remember she housed the spies. And then the. Her, her city men came looking for the spies. She didn't say oh yeah well they just left. And they're, they're, they're hiding in my closet right now. Actually I don't want to break the commandment. Do you remember what she did? She lied. She lied through her teeth. She along with Abraham by the way. Shows up in Hebrews chapter 11. As representatives of the faithful. 
And both of them, they lied. They lied. She said, oh, I don't know where those guys are. I don't know where those spies are. Rahab lied. Oscar Schindler lied. I've lied. I'd do it again. If it was for God's good and God's glory. Someone breaks into my home and my family is hidden. If you have them hiding in the garage or holding me at gunpoint and tell me where your family is, I am not going to tell them they're in the garage. <laughs> That's stupid. I'm going to what? Lie. I'm going to lie. Okay, so just, all I'm saying is, this is going bad. All I'm saying, some of you, if you walk out right now, you're like, I, I heard what I wanted to hear. <laughs> Done. Best sermon ever. I'm going to break the rest now. It's just more, compl- it's more complicated, okay, than that. Because people come to the text and they see that Abraham lies. They're like, no, he's wrong, he's evil, he's wicked. And then we dismiss everything else that we read here. But it's not necessarily wrong that he lied. Well, let's take it a step further. Actually, he didn't lie. He didn't lie. They had the same daddy. Was Sarah his sister? Yes. She was. That was probably a selling point. This is great. You don't even have to change your last name. Marry me. So convenient. He married He married his half-sister. So technically, what he's doing here is not an outright lie as much as he, he is telling a half. He's not telling the whole truth. He's being wise. He's being shrewd. Well, he's handing his wife over. He's handing his wife over. I mean, what could become of her? No, not if he's banking on the tradition of the day that they would deal well with he and his wife and negotiate and give him time and, and nothing would happen unless he approved of it. Not if he was banking on that. As well as he knew that if he said he was her husband, he would be killed. How's that for protecting his wife? Here's the thing with being dead. You can't protect your wife when you're dead. So I think when we just take a a deeper look, we at least have the possibility. And we're not even getting to see yet how God is going to deal with Abimelech versus Abraham. But we definitely have the possibility. It is conceivable that Abraham is not acting selfishly here. He is actually using wisdom and discretion. And he's attempting to protect his wife. In fact, when we get to Genesis chapter 26, you'll, you'll, you'll find Isaac doing the same thing. So apparently Abraham sits his son down and shares this strategy with him. Hey, if you go to a place and they're hostile, bank on the traditions, don't tell them that you're her husband, tell them that you're her brother. Because Isaac does the same thing a few chapters later. Here's what's hilarious. Guess who he does it to? Abimelech's grandson. (laughs) They're like, oh, again, this family's killing us. We'll get there in Genesis chapter 26. So this is what Abraham does. They come in and they say, uh, she is my sister, And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And at this point, I'm sure that Abraham begins to pray. That's what I believe. And if we're viewing this optimistically, we begin to see Abraham as the man of faith that he is, acting wisely here. Then there's room for that. We're going to see that he's a praying man, and we're going to see at the end it's his prayers that actually are answered, and it's his prayers that lead to uh, the salvation of his own family and the good of his enemies. So here, Abimelech breaks custom, breaks tradition. 
He's a pompous, arrogant king. He bypasses her brother, her husband, whatever, bypasses her, sends for her. And what did he do? He took Sarah. That is never acceptable. That is never acceptable, not only in God's law, but in the common law of this day. That was using his power and, 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 and exerting his force to get what he wanted and not applying rules to himself that he would apply to others. So he went and he took Sarah. At this point, Abraham begins to pray. We'll catch up with his prayers later. Now, verse 3 and following. So look how God is going to deal with Abimelech. God does not come and say, hey, buddy, listen, you've been duped. Okay, I've got this guy. His name is Abraham. He's a knucklehead. He keeps screwing up because that's how people portray him. He keeps screwing up. He screwed up again. I'm sorry for this big mishap. Just hand Sarah back and everything's fine. We'll just forget this ever happened. This is not how God deals with Abimelech. Listen to God's opening line. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. Wow. Now, first of all, can God get to anybody? Amen. God can get to anybody. Having an audience with the king is difficult. Right? Some of you, would some of you like to sit down across from President Obama and ask him some questions? Well, go just call him up and set that up, right? I'm sure you'll get on his docket in the next couple weeks or so. No, you're not going to sit in front of him. Okay? You think of a man just wanted to pass along a message to Abimelech, he's going to be able to do that with ease? Absolutely not. Well, can God get to a man? I mean, you serve a God that he just shows up in a dream. If there's any place you feel safe, it's sleeping in your bed, in your palace, and you're a king, right? He gets awoken by the voice of God. The voice of God. And God sounds like a mob hitman. What are the words out of his mouth? I mean, no introduction. The first words out of his mouth is, you are a dead man. That would be unsettling. Why? What did he do? Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. So make no mistake, Abimelech stole Sarah. Abraham did not hand her over. Abraham, again, was counting on the common law of the day and putting himself in a position where he could, in fact, protect his wife. But this king, like Pharaoh before him, came and he didn't negotiate. They didn't work out any compensation agreement. There was no discussion of dowry, nothing. He just came and took Sarah and put her into his harem with all the other women that he was trying to impregnate so that his kingdom could grow. Now, what's interesting is the plague that God gives, we're going to read in verse 17 and 18, is he closes the wombs of everyone in his kingdom. So here he is. He's going to, he wants to add another woman so that he can have more children. Because if you're a powerful king, what do, you want, what do you want to do? You want to have more and more kids. You want to expand your kingdom. Now, Sarah, who's been barren her whole life, passes on her barrenness to all of the women in his household. And God closes the wombs, which probably means, as it does in Isaiah 66, not only that no women are getting pregnant, but no women are having birth. God is ceasing life in Abimelech's kingdom. That's the plague. 
So God comes and says, you're a dead man, and you're a dead man, what? Because you stole her. You took a woman. Now, here's the deal. Not just any woman. Okay, all women, all women are beautiful. All women are precious. Okay, But this is God's girl. Right? Amen. This is Sarah. Right. Amen. Okay, a few months before this, the Lord Jesus came and had lunch with her. And sat down across from her and said, listen, I've been assuring your, your husband for decades and giving him promises, but I wanted to come and speak to you directly. And I want to tell you that a year from now, you're going to be holding the baby you've always wanted in your arms. That's who we're talking about here. God is going to fulfill his promise through this girl. If you're going to steal a girl on planet Earth, this is not the one you steal. Now, Abraham's hands are tied. What is he going to do? He can't get to the king. He can't get to her. But who can? God. God shows up in a dream and says, hi, Abimelech. I'm God. You're dead. You're dead. You're dead because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. So what that means is, is Sarah, we're going to see about three months. She's been in his harem. And for some reason, he has not approached her, which means he hasn't laid a hand on her, which means he hasn't slept with her yet. Now, of course, populating his harem with women, the purpose was that he would sleep with these women. But he hasn't done it. So here Abimelech, right? The question is, who are you going to give the benefit of the doubt to? Okay, you're going to give it to Abimelech or Abraham. So Abimelech is going to make, give some reasons for why he did what he did here. And Abraham does the same thing in verses 11 through 13. And everybody wants to throw Abraham under the bus and then give Abimelech the benefit of the doubt. But God deals pretty fiercely with him. So Abimelech here tries to brag. Listen, I haven't touched her. I haven't approached her. What's he saying? I'm a good guy. I'm a good guy. Three months, this beautiful woman has been in my harem, and I haven't gone anywhere near her. He's trying to defend himself, right? Like, I know she's here, but listen, I want you to know, I haven't touched her. God's like, I know. I know. And God's going to say something else revealing. Abimelech said, based on the fact that he hadn't touched her, right? Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did not he himself say to me? Now he's going to try to shift and blame Abraham. She is my sister. And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. The this he is referring to is taken her from Abraham. He's trying to say, listen, I didn't know that they were married. If I knew that they were married, I never would have taken her into my harem to impregnate so that my kingdom could grow. That's the case he's making. Well, now God responds and listen to what God says. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart. What's the this again? That you have brought her into your harem. Not God says, I know. I know that you didn't know that she was Abraham's wife. I understand that. But now God is going to clarify something. So he says, honest move, honest move. You didn't know that she was Abraham's wife. But then God says this in regards to him not touching her. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. This is God's girl. Protects her, doesn't he? 
God says, I'll give you the integrity of your heart in taking her from Abraham. But what is God saying here? Do not take credit and do not gloat and do not portray yourself as this bastion of purity. There's one reason that you didn't touch her. I did not let you. God said I protected her. This is a very important principle for us as Christians to remember. We need to remember that when we do not sin, the credit is not due us. The credit is due God. The credit is due God. Because here's the trap that we can fall into as Christians. And it's, it's a way that Satan tempts us. And it's a way to just get us into more sin. You've experienced seasons where you will have victory over sin. What I mean by that is you, you, for a long time you did something that you knew you shouldn't do. And then you had a season where you stopped doing it. Okay, You were doing better. And one of the things that you're tempted to do, and I'm tempted to do, is when I go a few months, or I go a few weeks, or I go a few years, is I start to grow proud. I start to grow proud or arrogant and take credit. Because there were things that I did to get to this point. I've been praying more. Man, no wonder I'm doing so well. I'm praying a lot. I read my Bible I've had a devotion for 312 days in a row. I go to church. I never miss it. And so what we do is we apply these means of... Those are good. Those are means for mortifying sin, killing sin. And you should do those. But we then take those and develop a false confidence and give ourselves the credit for where we are instead of God. That's proud. And it's arrogant. That's right. boasting. It's saying, I'm where I am because of the hard work that I put in. Well, you may have put some hard work in, but it has been by the grace of God. Amen. By the grace of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And the truth is, you could have prayed all night and all you wanted and read your Bible all you wanted And if God did not restrain you, you'd still be where you were. You would still be in sin. So you've got some victory over sin. Is it because you have worked and labored hard to fight your sin? Yes, it is. And is it because God has not handed you over to your sin? Yes, it is. Is it because God has been gracious enough to help you and to enable you and to incline your heart to do what he says? Yes, it is. So who gets the credit? Who gets the glory? God. And if we forget that, if we take our mind off of that, then we begin to do what? You've done this. You back off. So one of the things you know, Christian, you've discovered this. You've gone long seasons without sin. And those long seasons preceded what? A huge fall. A huge fall. Sometimes worse than before. And you think about what you were thinking about right before you fell. And what was it? I'm doing pretty good. Take heed. Right? Because pride comes before destruction. Watch out. Be careful. As well, on the back side of this, that's the foresight on the back side. When you do experience good seasons in your life, if you remember that it is God's hand that is not letting you sin, you'll be much more grateful. 
you'll be much more grateful. It won't be patting yourself on the back. It'll be thanking God. Thank you, God, that I am not what I could be. Thank you, God. John Newton said that. Some of you have heard that he said that. He said, I am, I am not who I want to be. But by the grace of God, I am not who I once was. God's grace. Abimelech right here is learning a lesson from God. So God reminds him that the only reason that he is where he is is because God has been gracious and God has prevented him from sinning against Sarah. Verse 7, God now tells him what to do. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. Or you don't have to do that, God says. He gives him an option, free will, right? Gives him an option. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So he gives him some options here. Hey, how important is this girl? You want to keep her in her harem, that's just fine. But I'm going to kill you and your whole household. Or he tells him this, you can hand her back to her husband. What does he tell him to do? He says, I want you to give this woman back to my what? Prophet. Now, again, if Abraham is sinning, that's a very interesting time for God to introduce for the first time in the Bible the term prophet. Abraham is the very first person in your Bible to be called by God a prophet, a mouthpiece of God, God's spokesman. Is God saying that on the heels of Abraham selfishly handing his wife over to be abused and possibly even killed by a wicked king? So he comes to Abimelech and says, listen, this man is my prophet. Later, he'll be called God's friend. This is an important man in my plan. This is an important girl in my plan. You give her back to the prophet. And then what does he tell him to do? And then you ask the prophet to pray for you. And if he prays for you and prays for your good, I will answer his prayer and I will heal your land. But my means for blessing you is going to be through my man, Abraham. Now, this is exactly what God told Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12 when God made his covenant with him. And God said this, listen, if people bless you, I'll bless them. And if people dishonor you, I'll curse them. What's happening here? Abimelech is dishonoring Abraham and God. And so God curses him. And he sends this plague. So God confronts him and gives him this instruction. Tells him, listen, the only reason this hasn't gotten worse is because of my providence, because of my sovereign hand restraining you. And so now give her back. Give her back to her husband, to my prophet, And then after you give her back, you should ask this man to pray for you. Pray for you. And if he prays for you, I'll take care of you. But if you don't do this, and if you disregard our time together, I'm going to wipe you out. And I'm going to wipe out your whole household. Verse 8. Let's see how Abimelech... Responds. He's going to respond well. 
He's going to respond well. He, he may even repent. He may even end up loving God. We're not sure. But in chapter 21, as we'll see next week, he becomes a friend of Abraham's and they enter into a covenant with each other. But it starts a little rocky. A little rocky. Verse 8. So Abimelech, wouldn't you like to be in this meeting? So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. You love those understatements, right? In Scripture. I'm sure they were very afraid. Yes. What would this meeting consist of? Oh, by the way, I almost forgot to tell you guys. God came to me last night and told me he was going to kill me. And all of you. That's, that's unsettling. I would strike fear in your heart. So, of course, they respond in obedience. Verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? So he, he is going to complain a bit here. Okay? He is going to try to point the finger back at Abraham. He's very, very upset with what has happened and, and sees it as his fault. He called and said, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? Right? Abimelech's trying to say, Listen, if you would have told me that you were her husband, okay, I would have just left you two alone. Right. Right. That's why when I told you I was her brother, you ignored every tradition and custom according to common law and came and stole her from our family. Is this what Abimelech is selling right now? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Shame on you, Abraham. Really? Again, who are you going to give the benefit of the doubt to? Father Abraham or Abimelech? And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Right? You're picking on me. Right? He feels picked on. And Abraham said, Abraham just, he gives him his reasons. He's not lying anymore. Here's exactly what I thought. I did this because I thought, number one, there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. So what does he say? He says, you don't love God. You don't honor God. I just didn't think you'd really have my best interest in mind. There's no fear of God here. I operate according to God and his word. I seek to be faithful to him, to love him, and to honor him. There's no fear of God in this place. So I've got a plan and a strategy to keep my bride safe. Verse 12, besides, here he goes, she is indeed my sister. I wonder if that was a surprise. He says, actually, Abimelech, joke's on you. I didn't lie. Same daddy. She's the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So my sister, so the foundational relationship here is his sister. Since she became my wife, verse 13. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me that he is my brother. Now, finally, we read what Abimelech does, how, how he handles it. He, uh, he backs off and he obeys, he obeys God. 
Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. So this is a, this is a good thing because he's, not, he's going above and beyond, isn't he? God didn't tell him that he had to take sheep and oxen and servants and give them over to Abraham. You see how this works? Everywhere Abraham goes, people are just giving him stuff. Everywhere he goes, he wins the lottery. Here, have some sheep, have some oxen. I'm, what, is, what is Abimelech doing here, okay? He's saying, I'm sorry. Okay, I hope you will forgive me. I hope God will forgive me. Here is a symbol of my repentance. So he gives them uh, all, of this, all of this livestock. And he returns Sarah, his wife, to him. And then Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. So not only that, he doesn't even... Do you remember in chapter 12, Pharaoh did this. He didn't give Abraham anything, but everything that Abraham collected while he was there, he got to take with him. But Pharaoh actually drove Abraham out, right? Abimelech doesn't do that. Abimelech says, here, stay here. And here is paradise. Okay, here is paradise. This is working out the opposite the way it did for Lot and where he raised his children. Here, you see that God is using this. His providence is working in such a way that Abraham ends up with a secure place and environment to raise his son, who's going to be born in nine months. So he's left Sodom and Gomorrah. He's left the hills of Mamre. He's left everything that was in this place. He's down here in the land of the Philistines and who will become God's great enemies. And here he now earns favor with this king who is so distraught over his offense to Abraham and his offense to God that the king says, listen, stay here in paradise. Your family can stay here. Your household can stay here. Like Abram said to Lot many years before, just take your pick, live where you want to live, plant down here. And it ends up being a wonderful, safe place for Isaac to be born and Isaac to be raised. Would not have expected the plan to go this well. And then to Sarah, he said, and I think there's something funny here. To Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. So he turns to Sarah and you have to think that he did this with his hands when he said, brother. (laughs) So he turns to her and says, listen, I've given your brother a bunch of silver. Wink, wink, your brother scoundrels I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver it is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated so here Sarah has been in this harem and what is of course the assumption that everybody's going to have of this woman right that she's now slept around that she's been unfaithful to her husband okay if a child is going to be born in nine months which it is Is it Abraham's child or is it Abimelech's child would be the question. So what does this great, powerful king do as a token to show the world that this woman is innocent? She is pure. Nothing has happened between us. There is peace between us. We're good. Gives her all this silver. Some say that the amount of silver here at that time was equivalent to a lifetime worth of wages. So he didn't come and work out any compensation for taking Sarah in the beginning, right, from her brother, her husband. And yet then here, in response to God's call, he gives her back and he gives her back with great riches. So he gives up much here and he gives up much in obedience to God and in obedience to Abraham. He gives her back 
Verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God. Remember what God said to Abimelech? Give him his wife back and then ask my prophet to pray for you. So he gives him his wife back. He says, will you pray for me? Why does he want to be prayed for? Because here's this king and what's happened? There's no births. There's no pregnancies. What happens if there's no births and there's no pregnancies to a family? The family dies, right? Family dies out. This city will cease to exist. Come back in a couple hundred years and there will be no legacy of Abimelech. Nothing. So life has been, the plague is that life has been taken from Abimelech's kingdom. So he's, he's asking Abraham, Abraham, will you, will you pray for me? And will you pray? This is, think about this. Because what has Abraham been praying his entire life? That God would open the womb of Sarah. And now what's his enemy asking him to do? Pray that God would open the wombs of your enemies. So Abraham prayed. He's a faithful man. So Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech. And also healed his wife and female slaves. So that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech. Because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Is that interesting? So here Abraham's wife Sarah has been barren her whole life. Her womb has been closed her whole life. And Abimelech's family has just been flourishing. He steals God's girl and brings her into his family. And guess what starts happening to all the ladies in his household? They're like Sarah. Their wombs are closed. Now I want to just read a couple more verses here in chapter 21. Because I think that we're to read verses 1 and 2 immediately after verse 18. When Moses wrote the book of Genesis, remember, he didn't put chapter breaks. There were no verses and there were no chapter breaks. Can you imagine living before the 13th century? No chapters, no verses. So if you refer to something, it's like, well, it's in there. (laughs) Well, where? Well, like in the middle, sort of a third of the way through. That would be a nightmare, wouldn't it? Stephen Langton in the 13th century is the one who added chapters and verses didn't come together for another 150 years later. So this is... So when you see chapter breaks, what we can tend to do is you read like verse 18 and then you say, okay, done, closed, forget about it. Chapter 21, like a chapter in a book. And of course, it's all going to go together, but this is a new thought and a new idea. But that can mess you up sometimes because originally these verses just flowed. So I want you to hear what happened. Okay, so so let's look at the chronology of what's taken place so far, all the way back to Genesis chapter 18. This is really this is really important. Okay, you're going to see the gospel in this. If we go all the way back to chapter 18, that's when God came and made the promise to Sarah. Okay, and now we're dealing with 12 months, right? Because God came to Sarah and said, there's going to be 12 months and then you're going to have your baby. Isaac is going to be born in 12 months. Okay, so immediately after that, God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Immediately after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham takes his family and they move south to Gerar and Sarah is taken, right, into Abimelech's household. And then she's there for a period of time. We're going to learn how long in a second. She's there for a period of time. And then Abimelech releases her. And then Abraham prays that God would open the wombs of his enemies. And guess what God does at the same time? 
The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son. So what does God do? Do you see this all together? God opens the wombs of Abimelech's wives and Abraham's wife at the same time. And then nine months later, a son will be born. Nine months from 12 months. So how long was she in his harem? For three months. And God waits until his prophet is praying for his enemies. I mean, Abraham's been praying his whole life. His whole life, Abraham has been praying, just just give us a child. Just give us a kid. Some of you have struggled with infertility. You know how painful that is. Hey, Sarah's 90 years old. They've been praying their whole life, open her womb, open her womb, open her womb. Do we have any idea how difficult it would be for him to pray this prayer for his enemies? Knowing that God was going to be faithful, but not knowing when God was going to fulfill his promise to him. And here Abraham sees the timing of all this come together. And here's Abraham with the humility, the godliness, to pray the blessing for his enemies that has been the blessing that he's wanted for his own family. And he prays to God for this and God opens the wombs back up in Abimelech's family. And then God says something to Sarah. Right? And God comes and moves in Sarah's body. And she conceives a child. And nine months later, just like God said, baby boy in her arms. God is faithful to his promise. Let me try to illustrate the the gospel even more clearly than I think it has just through the exposition of chapter 20. I want you to see how this is a picture of the gospel of God coming and rescuing his people and God coming after his bride and, and rescuing his bride. To do that, we've got to put chapter 20. This is a a reminder. We've got to put it in the middle of the story that we're reading, right? Because we're reading a long story from Genesis to Revelation. Okay? And you've got a plan that God is bringing into fruition from Genesis to Revelation. And Genesis is the beginning and Revelation is the end. Right? The culmination. So these are the bookends of this story. Okay, chapter 1 of Genesis, okay, and the very end of Revelation. And in between this is God moving His will and moving His story. And we're right in the middle of it. God is writing His story, and He has an enemy who is trying to thwart His plans, right? He's trying to ruin God's plans, An enemy who's working against God. In the end, in Revelation, he's called the dragon. Okay, there is a dragon. Today, there is God, not gods. There is God and a dragon. And God and the dragon are arch enemies. And God has a plan and the dragon has a plan. And God has a will and the dragon has a will. And God's plan is to bring forth life, and redemption 
and restoration and rescue. This is God's plan that he is unfolding. That's where the story is moving and will end in Revelation. And the dragon's plan is to kill. He's murderous. His plan is to kill. His plan is to destroy. His plan is to hurt. His plan is to harm. His plan is to stop God's plan. And here we are. God is writing this story, right? And just like Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 20, we're just further down in the story, but we're in it. And there's a lot of things we don't know because God's writing the story. So we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen next week. We don't know what's going to happen. That's why James says, hey, listen, you're going to say you're going to go visit this town next week. Say, if the Lord wills, you're going to visit. Because don't forget who's writing the story. That's what God's telling us. It's my providence, but we know how the story's going to end. So we're in the story, and we know who the characters are, and we know the unchangeable qualities of the characters, right? God's not going to go evil. The dragon's not going to go good. Okay, and they're operating according to their character, and those are unchangeable moving forward. And we know how the story's going to end. We know how the story's going to end. How does the story end? God kills the dragon. God kills the dragon. Now, here we are in the story, and here Abraham and Sarah were in the story. How does God kill the dragon? You remember what God said way back in Genesis chapter 3 to Adam and Eve? Remember what he said? Because you're going to have offspring. You're going to have children. Okay, children are wonderful. Children are a reward from God. Children are a blessing from God always and forever. And he says, and you're going to have a very special child. Very special child. Now, what is this child going to do and who is this child going to be? Well, he will be the dragon slayer. That is who Jesus was going to be. That's who Jesus was. That's who Jesus is. God said, I'm going to send one who will destroy the works of the devil, the works of the enemy, the works of Satan, the dragon. And he will be born eventually in your line. The dragon slayer that will kill the dragon. So what is the dragon's will and the dragon's strategy? We see this throughout Genesis. It is to stop children. It is to keep babies from being born. Do you understand the animosity that the dragon has for babies? For life. And do you understand how God's people who understand God's plan love babies and love life? It's why when Adam looked at his wife Eve and said, what are you going to name her? He named her what? Life giver. What's most spectacular about her is that she's going to bring forth life, babies, children. And one of those children will be the dragon slayer who will slay the dragon and free all of us who have been held in captivity our whole life by our fear of the dragon, Hebrews tells us. So what is Satan's strategy over and over and over again in Genesis? It is to screw up the families. It is to screw up the offspring. It is to keep this child from being born. Do you remember what he incited Herod to do? Kill all the babies. Kill all the babies. 
Have you seen what he's done so far? Have you seen how he's trying to corrupt the family? Lot and his daughters. Remember chapter 6, that crazy story, the sons of God and the daughters of men? Do you remember that was part of the dragon strategy? Who were these sons of God? Right, that slept with the daughters of men and produced the Nephilim. Do you remember what that was? The sons of God were fallen angels. Fallen angels sent on behalf of the dragon to produce his own offspring and to keep God's offspring from being born. That's why in 1 Peter 3 it says that between Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, one of the things he did is he descended into hell and he preached to those angels. And you know what he preached? You lost. You lost. Because guess who I am? The promised offspring. You're defeated. And he came back, was resurrected, and sits at the right hand of the Father. You see that the dragon has tried to do this with Sarah. This is the second time now. Tried to get her pregnant by another man, Pharaoh, in chapter 12. God came and rescued her and said, no, this is my girl. This is my promise. This is my plan. And her offspring will be Isaac and on and on and on. And Jesus Christ, the dragon slayer. And now here again in chapter 12 is his attempt, is his plan as he tries to get Sarah pregnant by another man. And what does God do? God rescues. God rescues. You see the gospel here? Who does Abimelech represent? He is the dragon. Abimelech is the dragon. What does he try to do? He tries to steal God's girl. What is the dragon trying to do today? He's trying to steal God's girl. Who is God's girl? The bride. Who are we, church? How does God refer to us? This may be weird for some of you. We're God's girl. Some of you guys are like, uh... <laughs> what do you mean by that? I mean that God loves you and will protect you and provide for you and meet all your needs and be everything that you need always and forever will save you and rescue you from harm like a good husband does for his wife. But Christ is the great bridegroom and we are his bride. The dragon's attempt here is to steal the bride from Christ. You remember what Jesus says? No one that's pointed at the dragon can snatch them out of my hand. How does the story end? God kills the dragon and gets the girl. Hollywood did not invent this. You wonder why you like those movies so much. It's rooted in redemption, written on our hearts. God kills the dragon and God gets the girl. And then you know what he does? He brings his bride over to his house for dinner forever. Celebration. A wedding feast. Where do we all end up, friends? If you're a Christian, you are the bride of Christ. He will come for you. It's a promise. And where will he take you? To his spread. (laughs) His banqueting table, right? To his banqueting table. 
And what will we do with the Lord Jesus Christ forever? We will feast with him. We will feast with him. God rescues his people from the dragon. God rescued his girl from the dragon in Genesis chapter 20. A picture of what God does for his bride. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for giving us so many examples and so many stories so that we can grasp what you have done for us. God, thank you that as we read Genesis unfold, that you are not a God who is flying by the seat of his pants. You're not a God who's just adjusting with the times. You're not a God who's trying to figure out how to clean up messes, but that you are a sovereign God who is in control of everything, everything. And even when it looks like things are going wrong and your plan is off course and people and the dragon means things for evil, that you mean it for good. God, thank you for rescuing Sarah. Even more so, though, God, thank you for this picture of the gospel. Amen. We understand what it must have been like for Sarah to be in Abimelech's harem for three months, probably more despairing than ever, having just received your promise, having just received the timeline and now threatened more than ever as she is in the harem of a wicked king. And then, God, you came and rescued her. And to her surprise, the guards walked in one day and said, you've been released. The king is at a change of heart. And it was because of you and your rescue. Nothing Abraham did. It was you and your rescue. So, too, God, we owe our salvation to you and to you alone. We didn't find the keys. We didn't open the doors. We didn't climb the hill. We didn't do the work. We didn't meet you halfway. You came us and found us, God, when we were wandering and loving it. You came and found us when we were sinning and loving it. And you turned us. And you rescued us. And we're so glad you did, God. Because we see that what we are after and what we were chasing was, in fact, a chasing after the wind. And there was nothing good and only despair was waiting for us. And now you've given us pleasures unimaginable that are at your right hand. So thank you, God, for rescuing your people and bringing us to dine with you. We love you and we give you all praise, glory and honor in Jesus name. Amen.